When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. By open and relational, I mean, I think God is in a real giving and receiving relationship with us and all creation. God not only influences us, but God is influenced by us. And love, I think, is inherently relational. So it makes sense to say a loving God would be giving and receiving because love gives and receives. The openness part refers to God moving into an open future. This God neither predestines nor even foreknows with certainty everything that's going to happen in the future and gives and receives moment by moment in a loving relationship. Um, It's hard to imagine a God who is timeless having any kind of momentary giving and receiving love relationships. But in open theology, we don't think God is timeless. We think God everlastingly moves through time moment by moment in relation to creation. And that uh, philosophical framework, you might say, not only makes a lot more sense of what love looks like, but also, at least according to us in the open relational camp, far better fits the God of Scripture, the God described as engaging in those kinds of love relationships. Now I am not sure what I believe. Do you Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and I got another returning guest this week. Very excited to talk about his latest book. But before we get to that, uh, if you go to www.thedeconstructionist.com, that is your one-stop shop for everything deconstructionist, or at least related to this podcast anyway, you can listen to our entire back catalog of episodes, read our blog, check out our web store, and grab a t-shirt, coffee mug, or pint glass. Link to us on social media or help support the podcast if you like uh, via our Patreon. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single new episode. And tell a friend. Word of mouth is how we've managed to grow over the years. And so we appreciate that anytime somebody can refer us to someone who might need it. The theme music is by Forrest Clay, a dear friend of ours. Uh, You can pick up his brand new EP, Recover, anywhere you find your music. This week, I welcome back our friend, Dr. Thomas J. Ord. Thomas J. Ord is a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. Ord is a best-selling and award-winning author, having written or edited more than 25 books. He directs a doctoral program at Northwind Theological Seminary and the Center for Open and Relational Theology. A 12-time faculty award-winning professor, he teaches around the globe. Ord is known for his contributions to research on love, Open Relational Theology, Science and Religion, and the Implications of Freedom and Relationships for Transformation. We talk all about his latest book, Pluriform Love, and Open and Relational Theology of Well-Being, which is out now and available anywhere books are sold. 
So without further ado, we welcome back Dr. Thomas J. Ord. What matters most As the lights go out and I swim towards the coast Love of life, spirit All right. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. Thomas J. Ord, you are, uh, I think, now in the three-timers club on the uh, on the show. So welcome back. Hey, it's my pleasure. We'll call it a hat trick. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So I, I feel like on, like on Saturday Night Live, when you hit the five-timers club, we should <laughs> award you with some sort of like robe or something, you know, a jacket. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. So last time we had you on, I think we talked about uh, God Can't. And so, actually, no, I'm sorry. We talked about, last time we had you on, we talked about your follow-up to, to God Can't, kind of the, the oh, study yeah. you put together. This time, you've got a new book coming out called uh, Pluriform Love. So... Uh, talk a little bit about what was the inspiration, because this is really a continuation of of the work that you've been doing for years. Yes. Yeah, very much so. I mean, these are ideas I've been <laughs> playing with since I was a kid and and worked with in graduate school, doing my doctorate. Um, these are ideas that I've been working at for a long time. But I thought I have some new things to say. I wanted to re, I wanted to package them in a new way. And um, I really thought these ideas were important, so I wanted to get them out there. One of the, one of the important things, obviously, in this book is you know the book being about love and the way that you know uh, God loves us and the way that we love others. Uh, one of the things you talk about at the start of the book is what love is not, and so some of and maybe perhaps some of the um, the arguments that you have against some of the uh, forms of love or uses of the word love that are in current the current vernacular. Yeah, I mean, I think some of them are kind of obvious to people, like, you know, sex and romance. That can be loving, but it also cannot be loving, you know. I don't think rape is love, because I think love promotes well-being. Or sometimes people will say, we just need to love each other, and they mean by that, we should just tolerate anything anyone does. And, I mean, I'm, I'm for all for tolerance, but there's such a thing as extreme tolerance. And, uh, I'm not in the bit, you know, I'm not advocating that we tolerate hate crimes, for instance. So I, I don't think we should understand love as extreme tolerance. Then there are other understandings of love that I think are a little more subtle and like people haven't thought very carefully through them, like, um, love as desire, um, you know, I don't have any problems with desires so long as they're rightly uh, aimed at what's good. But I think love is more than desire. For me, love ultimately aims at well-being, flourishing, doing good, what Jesus called abundant life. Um, and so early in the book, I lay out a definition of love that I hope can offer some clarity. I define love as acting intentionally in relational response to God and others to promote overall well-being. I, I love that because the key word, you, you kind of put words to, to something that I've been arguing for a long time, which is good. That, uh, love, love being kind of this selfless act. There's, you know, as you said, there's a difference between love when we love others with no ulterior motive, as it were, um, it, this truly selfless act of love. That's, to me, that's always been kind of um, a glimpse into the divine as best we can 
have one, you know, here on here on Earth. And I feel like that's sort of kind of what you're a- angling towards with the the promoting well being is, you know, this idea that um, it's it's a type of love that asks for nothing in return. Yeah, yeah. And now I don't want to dismiss self-love, which I'm guessing you don't want to dismiss that either. So sure, yeah. I, I don't want to say love is always aimed for everybody else's good and I've got to, you know, kill myself in the process. And, and you're not suggesting that either. But yeah, there's it's, it's something about promoting, well, I I'm, I'm keep coming back to the same words, well-being, overall well-being. And the overall not only includes my neighbor, but it includes enemies and strangers. It not only includes my family, but it includes my own well-being, at least sometimes. And I even make the claim in this book that it includes God's well-being. Um, so when I use that phrase, overall well-being, I've got a pretty massive vision for what for whose good we might promote. Yeah, I love that. It's kind of it makes me think of when you're uh, getting ready to take off on a flight, and the um, f- you know the flight attendants are telling you put your mask on first before you put the mask on you know for your for your child next to you. It's like you yeah. can't help your child unless you can help yourself first, and kind of much in the same way, you can't possibly love others in the way that that God wants you to if you don't love yourself first. Right, and I think in the last twenty, thirty years, the the most eloquent uh, voices telling us this have come from the feminist community who uh, many of them women who have uh, have are bucking against this notion that love never looks out for our own good no that love does consider our own good in light of the whole now sometimes we really do have to sacrifice ourselves for others but it's not love sometimes really calls us to promote our own good i mean this morning while i was getting ready I brush my teeth. That was primarily for my own good. I don't want cavities. Uh, I also had in mind other people smelling my breath. So I had, you know, that was played part of it. But it was primarily because I want good teeth. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that kind of self-love. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So talk a little bit about one of the things you mentioned at the beginning of the book also is you kind of critique uh, some modern theologians' uh, definition of love, or or in one instance, uh, the lack of of love as a central uh, tenet of their theology. So talk about that a little bit, because I think kind of modern interpretation or what we kind of take for granted is this is the way we've always viewed things. Uh, We take take that for granted that maybe not. Yeah, yeah. Well, I pick on two people in particular who are alive today and who are writing. One is a biblical scholar who's pretty prominent. His name is Richard Hayes. I think he just retired from Duke University. He wrote this massive book on New Testament ethics. And in that book, he says there are three focal points for Christian ethics, and love is not among them. And then he gives a little explanation for why he doesn't put love among them. And in this book, I lay that out and then criticize that pretty strongly. So in his case, it's someone explicitly setting aside love as the core. But it's much more common for uh, people or for the person who represents the second kind of uh, thinker uh, to be acting in the academy. And that's, and that's the idea of someone who says they think God is loving, 
but their theological doctrines just don't mesh with the way we understand love. Maybe, you know, they believe uh, God predestines everything, and yet somehow God loves even though the Holocaust and your sister's rape was predestined. Or maybe these people think uh, it's somehow loving for God to send people to eternal conscious torment in hell, which makes no sense to me. Or more subtly, they'll say things like, God's love is always giving, it's never receiving, it's never relational. But everything we know about love involves real relationships. It involves giving and receiving, influencing others and being influenced. And so there's a whole realm of theological claims uh, that are made by people who want to say God is loving, but the way those claims kind of play out in their theology, it just doesn't fit with what we know as love. And I criticize that approach pretty strongly. And it seems to me that that, that kind of approach or that sort of uh, theological view of love seems to be even more prevalent, or maybe it's just more obvious in recent years that, you know, we say God is all, you know, God is all loving, uh, but you know, if you screw up a couple things on the checklist in this finite, you know, uh, life, then God is going to punish you for an eternity. It's like the punishment doesn't quite fit the crime there. You know, no. that's <laughs> a little excessive, don't you think? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And I don't think there's good biblical warrant for that position as well. So it's not just uh, going against our intuitions of what love is like. I don't think it's strongly supported by scripture. Yeah, Absolutely. And it, and it just, it's been interesting too, because we've had instances, you know, um, you know, politically, socially within, within the, the recent years where, uh, Christians, you know, who specifically in the West, I think who claim uh, to be loving and to claim to believe that, you know, that, that was the, the mission of Jesus was to kind of show the character of God or the nature of God as being love. And yet, uh, we haven't been very loving. It doesn't seem. No, and it, it, it plays out in a bunch of ways. Many of them are super obvious uh, to people who are looking from the outside, you know, that uh, sometimes Christians will say, well, I'm being loving, but I'm excluding people of color, or I'm excluding people who are LGBTQ from having full inclusion in the faith community. You know, those things, we talk about those an awful lot in popular culture, and we know that there's some something going wrong there. But there are other things that are a little more subtle that we don't uh, necessarily think very deeply about in terms of... Um, what this means with God's desires, God's will, God's plans, God's uh, hopes and dreams for the future. And, um, and, and I guess I want to say we need to have a full-orbed uh, understanding of what God's love is that meshes with our deepest intuitions about what promoting well-being looks like. For everyone, for all creation, for ourselves, our, our neighbors, our enemies, strangers, the planet, etc. And uh, that, in my view, requires some rethinking of uh, what much traditional theology has said. Yeah, and one of the interesting things that you point out in the book also, and I didn't, I, I would have never guessed this, is that, you know, the, the, the Old Testament, or what we call the Old Testament as Christians, uh, does have a lot of kind of very violent stories in it. And uh, um, 
And, and yet, despite that, you mentioned that love is shows up more than any other concept within the Old Testament. I found that to be very interesting. Yeah, it's a recurring theme. There's a kind of a little f- set of phrases that occurs in about eight or nine books. It talks about God being uh, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, etc., um, those are there, but it's also true that there are some passages in which God is portrayed as wanting violence, as endorsing genocide, etc. And biblical scholars and theologians have wrestled with those over the years. Um, I'm often dissatisfied with where they end up because many of them are so keen on making sure the Bible is authoritative that they give these really strange explanations for divine violence in the Bible. They'll say, you know, if you look at it in this kind of odd way, maybe it's really loving for God to want genocide. And I think we should just, just come right out and say, look, some of these passages just get God wrong. They misunderstand what God's up to. And the reason we say that is not because, you know, we think we're so much more enlightened and perfectly, you know, all omniscient. It's because we look at the general drift of Scripture. We look at the revelation of God in Jesus. We consult our deep intuitions, our moral intuitions, and say, those are valid and valuable standards by which we should judge these genocide passages in the Old Testament or whatever. And there's some in the New Testament that are bothersome as well. But again, I think the general drift of Scripture points to a God of love. We ought to privilege those and then build from them. And, and to that point, you, you make this, uh, you bring this up in the book as well. And I think this is kind of important, in, in, no matter what you're talking about from, from a biblical standpoint, is specifically in the West, we seem to put a lot of weight into Scripture, which is fine, but we also kind of ignore experience. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, if, we, if we agree that the Spirit has, continues to work long after we finished writing what became the New Testament, then experience is also important. Definitely. I mean, I think Scripture is a record of people's experiences. So, it's not like experience is something over and against Scripture. It's people's experiences recorded in Scripture. Now, I also think God is inspiring, acting in the world, and sometimes people are uh, more in tune with God and therefore better reflect God's desires, wishes, God's Word, you might say. And other times they're not so in tune with God, and sometimes they miss it. And some of the biblical passages that have problems, we can just attribute to people misunderstanding God. Um, But there's also some things in Scripture that reflect the experience of people in the time that today we just think are wrong. You know, some of those are scientific kinds of things. Some of those are about cosmology. Some of those are about, you know, personal ethics, like what you should do if you have a period or, you know, the status of people who have little hair or balding like me. Uh, We just think there's, you know, things are different because our experience is different. And we think uh, we can count on at least our experience giving some truth about the way the world is and maybe who God is as well. Yeah, it makes me think of, uh, I can't remember who it was that, that made this this point, this example, uh, talked about the um, the Great Flood. And, and if you live in a time that exists prior to satellite images and, uh, you know, and, and airplanes and, and the ability to go from one side of the planet to the other and your entire world 
is basically five square miles, then <laughs> if that five square mile area floods, then the world is flooding to you, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. Very good point. Yeah. I was just say, uh, one of the other uh, individuals, I, I think that's uh, an important historic theologian that you talk about, um, that's had a, a great deal of impact on Christianity is, is Augustine and, and Augustine's uh, kind of interpretation of love and how you might disagree with that. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. First, let me uh, begin by a, a trivial um, remark, a, a trivial poem that will sound sophomoric, but I kind of like it. Uh, invented this when I was an undergraduate. It goes like this. You can say him, you can call him Augustine or you can say Augustine, but either way you say it, his theology's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I really, I really rip on Augustine big time in this book. Um, I not only think he misunderstands love in scripture, and I go to great pains to show how that's the case, claiming that more than 90% of the uh, mentions of love in the Bible pertain to well-being, and Augustine thinks love is all about desire. But I also strongly criticize his doctrine of God, the way he thinks about God as totally unaffected, unchanging in all ways, timeless, simple. Um, I think he's thinking about God much and much more influenced by Neoplatonic thought, uh, Greek philosophy, which is a very common criticism. I'm not the first to say that. But I really show in detail what that looks like when he talks about the issues of love. Yeah, and you mentioned that that he he's, his position is is sort of that God can't love us for our own sakes, you say, in the sense of enjoying or needing us. Uh, Augustine's God only loves God's self. What do you mean? So, God's self being one word, uh, yeah. explain to the listeners what you mean by that. Yeah, so Augustine thinks that love is either, it has, takes two forms. Either you enjoy something for its own sake, or you use something for the sake of something else. And he thinks that when it comes to our love for others in the world, we actually ought to use them for the sake of enjoying God, because God is really the only one, ultimately, whom we should desire. God is the perfect good. God has no flaws whatsoever. And if we're really smart, we'll place our our longings and our desires on that which is eternal and perfect, which is God, not on each other. Now, we might love each other as a means to God, but we don't love each other for their own sakes, in and of themselves. And then Augustine takes this logic and applies it to God and says, okay, well, God is super smart. God knows what's the best, the ultimate, the perfect, the supremely desirable, and that is God's own self. So, God just desires God's own self. God doesn't desire love the world in the sense of promoting its well-being. God wants what's best, and God is best, so God wants God's self. Um, and Augustine's pretty explicit about this. I'm not making this stuff up. It's right there in his own writings. He does want to say at one point that God can use us, but then that makes no sense because he's got a God who has no needs whatsoever. So if God has no needs, he has no need to use us for something else. 
And so even though he wants to say God loves us by, by using us, he really doesn't mean that because God has no need. Oh man, a lot of a lot of um, charismatic Christians are going to be really upset by that. <laughs> they love to say that you know God God loves us by using us. You know the, the term "using us" uh, being the key the key there. You hear that a lot, so that's. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And and I think God can call upon us to do things in the world to promote well-being and use us in that sense. That's not using us as like a tool as if we have no value in and of ourselves. So, God can both enjoy us for our own sakes and use us in the sense of calling us to do something good in the world. Uh, At least that's the God I believe in. But Augustine's God can't do either of those, at least not in an intellectually consistent way. Yeah. So talk about, so you also mentioned, uh, and and you talk about this in your other work as well, um, open and relational theology and how it relates to uh, your understanding of, of love. Yeah, that for me is the best way to think about God and God's love. By open and relational, I mean, I think God is in a real giving and receiving relationship with us and all creation. God not only influences us, but God is influenced by us. And love, I think, is inherently relational. So, it makes sense to say a loving God would be giving and receiving because love gives and receives. I yeah, also I, I like think... That. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go on. So, no, no, no. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to say God, the openness part refers to God moving into an open future. This God neither predestines nor even foreknows with certainty everything that's going to happen in the future and gives and receives moment by moment in a loving relationship. Um, It's hard to imagine a God who is timeless having any kind of momentary giving and receiving love relationships. But in open theology, we don't think God is timeless. We think God everlastingly moves through time, moment by moment, in relation to creation. And that uh, philosophical framework, you might say, not only makes a lot more sense of what love looks like, but also, at least according to us in the open relational camp, far better fits the God of Scripture, the God described as engaging in those kinds of love relationships. Yeah, and it, it makes sense, too, when you, you look back at, at kind of the fundamental Christian beliefs and the idea that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son— you know, it's it's almost as if he's saying, you know, I, I love my creation so much, I, I literally want to interact with it, you know, right. in, in human form. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there's lots of really paradoxes that come up if you think God is truly timeless. For instance, nearly every person I know who's a Christian thinks that God created the world. Now, there's a bunch of different theories for how that happened, whether or not it's ongoing or whether or not God created out of nothing. I mean, there's a bunch of options on the table. But if you think that God created in one moment, and in the previous moment, something else was God wasn't creating or God decided to create in one moment, then you've got a God who is making decisions in time. And a timeless God can't do that. Um, so, even just the mere idea that God creates requires some kind of notion of God being moving through time. Uh, I love that. Uh, 
the other thing that I really like that you say too, is you talk about essential kenosis. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. Talk about what you mean by that. Yeah, this is a kind of a nerd, nerdy word, uh, academic phrase that I invented a few years ago to describe this passage in Philippians chapter 2 that's fairly famous in scholarly circles. It's called the Kenosis passage. It comes in a song or hymn in which Paul seems to be quoting. And the song says something like, Jesus doesn't consider equality with God something to be clung to, but kenosis, self-gives, self-empties, taking the form of servant, even suffering, uh, dying on the cross. And what theologians have said is that this kenosis of Jesus, this self-giving love, servant-like love, vulnerability, that tells us something about God, that God is servant-like, self-giving, vulnerable. And a bunch of theologians have made this kind of argument. Jürgen Moltmann, you know, I could list a ton of them. Yeah, weak theology, it comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. What I've added to that mix by adding the word essential is I claim that it's God's very nature to be like this. It wasn't like God chooses to be self-giving and others empowering, as if God could have chosen not to engage the world, not to be vulnerable, if God, as if God could have just decided to make us all robots and control us. I think it's God's very nature to do that this way. Therefore, because God is self-giving and others empowering and must do so, God simply can't control others. The phrase I like to use is, God's love is inherently uncontrolling. And that idea really helps to make sense of the evil in the world. Because we don't have to say God caused the evil or even allowed or permitted it. We can say God is always loving, always acting, and simply can't control those to him to whom God gives freedom, agency, self-existence, life, etc., yeah, I thought that was interesting because you do mention that in the book as well. You talk about the fact that along with this this gift that humans have been given of, of free will, we can also choose not to love in certain instances. And clearly, we, you know, we do that often. We choose not to. Uh, and so, yeah, I thought, I thought that was interesting. And it kind of plays into this idea that, you know, ultimately, even in the moment where uh, we're at our worst, uh, you know, as human beings literally crucifying God himself, you know, if, if, if you, uh, uh, if you believe that, or if you go down that, that train of thinking that literally God loved us so much that he allowed that, you know, as he said, like, doesn't intervene, just doesn't intervene. Yeah. Yeah. Allows our free will to take it as far as it could possibly go. Yeah. And I'm saying even stronger than that word allow, I'm saying God necessarily gives us free will and God can't take it away or override it or decide not to give it. And that's a bold claim that a lot of theologians don't want to go quite that far. But the advantage of doing so is then we can say, you know, when your brother is tortured by the neighborhood bully, we don't have to say God allowed that torture. Or when some 
people group are eliminated from the planet through genocide, we don't have to say, well, God could have stopped it, but God permitted it. We can say God was always acting in a loving way possible, but simply couldn't stop it single-handedly, required the perpetrators to stop their action or the rest of us to somehow use our bodies to try to prevent that genocide. Well, it seems to me that what that opens up as well is is the extreme opposite as well. So, you know, obviously in the extreme moments where we choose not to to love, uh, the the polar opposite of that, it seems to me, when we do choose to love and to, you know, uh, embrace the best of our humanity, then that's sort of what the Bible talks about in terms of bringing uh, a little bit of the kingdom, you know, on earth. Yes, that's crucial in my view. I call this uh, this indispensable love synergy. That is, God. We can count on God to always love, but God calls us to cooperate, to collaborate in this love project. And what we do, it really makes a difference. Uh, there's a number of theologians today who will say things like, um, "Well, the sovereign God of the universe." has decided to invite us to participate in what God's doing in the world. We should join. And those theologians in their back pocket keep the idea that God could just do everything that needs to be done all alone. God can fix it single-handedly. And if that's true, then our contribution doesn't really matter. I mean, it's kind of nice maybe, but ultimately God's just going to get done whatever God wants to get done. In my view, what we do truly matters. There are things God wants to occur that can't occur unless we cooperate. And that means you and I have a real role to play in making the world a better place, the kingdom of God, whatever language you want to use. We make a difference. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I love that. Um, along with that, you, you have a, a, a relatively new uh, term that you, uh, that you bring up in the new book. Uh, so we talked about essential kenosis. Uh, how about essential hesed? That's a, I think that's a new one. I, I don't remember hearing that one before. <laughs> yeah, you know, one of the fun things about writing books is, you know, at least in this case, and I could point to others, you start the book and you kind of got an idea where you want to go, but along the way, like a new idea pops up you hadn't planned. And this is one of those. Uh, I realized that this uh, Jewish word uh, that we find in Hebrew, hesed, usually translated the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. This word hesed is really, really important for theology. And just like the word kenosis, it could be understood to say that God's love and faithfulness is something God could decide to take away. It could be saying, you know, God is, I mean, there's actually some biblical passages in which God threatens to abandon the people unless they, you know, decided to, uh, to cooperate. 
There are other passages in Scripture in which God says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. There's no way I could abandon you. So you got both those right in the text. And what essential Hesed does is pick one over the other. It says, you know what? God can't leave us, can't forsake us, must be faithful. God's steadfast love literally endures forever. That's the essential part. It's not a voluntary choice that God could make to abandon us or, you know, stay with us. It's really who God is by nature. Essential Hesed. I love that. It makes me think of um, a conversation my dad and I had years ago. Uh, where he mentioned, uh, you know, God is just constantly in pursuit of you, you know, and and mm. I always thought of it in, in the sense that, because, you know, growing up in a mixture of different expressions of Christianity, one that you hear a lot, not to pick on um, kind of the more evangelical stream of thought, but, you know, well, you know, you turned your back from God, you, you, you distanced yourself from God. And I thought, I kept saying like, look, that's like saying I ran away from my shadow. Like it just, it can't, where are you going to go? <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. That's the problem with thinking that somehow it's literally true that sin separates us from God. No, that can never happen. God's always present, always with us and always loves us. Now, sin can make our relationship difficult. We can be estranged from God in the sense of not cooperating well with God's love. But that's not because God abandoned us or left us. It's because we've decided not to cooperate with God. We're the ones who've had a change of mind, not God. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I think that's, I think we need to adopt that a little bit more. You know? <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Um, Along with that, you, you talk about uh, love in, in regards to uh, uh, creation, and you have this uh, this phrase. I'm going to butcher this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> creatio, creatio ex nihilo. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, creatio ex nihilo, or creation out of nothing, it's just the Latin phrase for that, is not a view that's in the Bible, but it is a view held by the majority of Christian theologians since about the fourth century. And it's the idea that probably most people who are listening to this have heard this idea, that God once existed all alone, either in Trinity or not, however you want to think of that, but without a creation. And then, for whatever reason, and theologians give different answers to this, God decided to create a universe out of absolutely nothing. Again, it's not in Scripture, but it emerged in the tradition as a way to try to account for why there's something in the world. Um, I think that view has lots of disadvantages. And one of the biggest is the idea that if God can create the world out of absolutely nothing, this God must have the kind of power to be able to prevent genuine evils now either just single-handedly prevent them or by creating something out of nothing now to, you know, create an obstacle to evil. And so in, in other books, I've talked about the problem with this, but in this book, I connect it with that essential Hesed idea. And I say, look, if the steadfast love of the Lord literally endures forever, why not think God has always been creating? Why not? Why say that God started creating it sometime from nothing? Why just say God always creates 
in one moment out of that which God created in the previous moment. And there are creaturely factors and actors that are also contributing, but God is everlastingly creating. That's going to fit with essential hesed, and it overcomes the creation out of nothing view. Uh, I, I know we talked a little bit about that. So if, you, if you're if you tuning in for the first time and you're hearing uh, our, our conversation, uh, go back to the, the first two interviews that we did, because we, we do talk about that, because I believe, I, I remember I brought up, because it always makes me think of, um, well, now it's retired, the Hubble Space Telescope, you know, and these images we get back, now it'll be the, the James Webb Telescope, hopefully fairly soon, but it, 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 absolutely makes sense to me in my mind as a, as a science space nerd that of course God keep, continues to create, uh, you know, scientists are saying now that the universe is expanding at light speed outward, you know, infinitely. And so like, it just makes sense to me. Of course, of course, God never stopped creating. Of course, God as the artist continues to paint, you know? Yeah. I'm glad you see it that way. Cause I think, I mean, I don't think science can give us a definitive answer to whether or not there was an absolute beginning of time. But I do think this idea fits the general scientific view of this continually creating. And even some of the most conservative biblical scholars today admit creation out of nothing isn't in the Bible. So what I try to do in this book is not only argue for essential hesed and God's always creating— but even propose a new creation doctrine, which simply says God always creates out of creation in love. And uh, I kind of work on some of the uh, answering some of the possible objections to that view in uh, one of the chapters. Yeah, I love that. A couple of the things I want to talk about here is towards the end, you talk about there's, there's a handful of terms uh, that are, that are found uh, in the Bible that refer to a, uh, I guess, a type of love. And, and you have this great diagram, by the way, you know, for, for folks who are listening, there's this great diagram that has love uh, bolded. And then there's all of these different, like sub, almost subcategories of, yeah. of different types of love. But you mentioned that all of them, uh, regardless of the the type of love, they all promote well-being in a, in a different, you know, a manner of different ways. So talk a little bit about first uh, agape. Yeah, agape occurs 319 times, I think, in various forms in the New Testament. It's the word a lot of Christians have heard of when they think about uh, Christian love. It's only in the New Testament, not in in Hebrew, because it's a Greek word. Uh, There's also, I don't think it's like 39 appearances of philea, so agape is not the only word in the New Testament for love, but it's by far the dominant one. And ever since the 1940s, Christians have kind of focused in on agape and proposed a lot of different theories for what the word means and what God's love is like. And I do a lot of work in this book teasing that out. And in the end, I say, if we really look at what the Bible, how the biblical authors use that word agape, there's no one meaning for the word. I mean, it does promote well-being in the general sense, but like, there's no like one very specific form of it because agape is used for enemy love, for friendship love, for self-love, for spouse love, for stranger love. I mean, all these different kinds of form. It's the same Greek word agape used. So uh, I make the argument 
it's okay to give it a particular um, um, definition, but just be clear that you're not saying it's the only way it could be understood or the only way in Scripture. And I end up proposing that maybe we ought to identify it more closely with enemy love or stranger love, because that's some of the prominent ways it's talked about in the Bible. And just for ease of reference, I call it in spite of love. In spite of not knowing who the person is, in spite of the harm that a person might have done, I'm going to promote their well-being in spite of what they've done or who they are. This one, you know, as I was reading this, this one feels more, um, when I think about God and, and you know, I, I've had this conversation with a number of people over the years, just uh, in terms of uh, mostly me arguing for, uh, against uh, a fire eternal pit. <laughs> so let me, <laughs> I love it. let me start there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let me start there. But, but so when I'm arguing against it and I'm saying that, that uh, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, makes sense it doesn't line up with with the uh the 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 loving god through jesus that we see through jesus uh one of the things that always comes up and, and my argument has been for a long time my dad and i get into discussions about this all the time i i i feel like it comes down to the human uh uh desire for justice mm. and and the fact that our love clearly has limits you even talk about that in the book you know my you know if someone harmed my daughter my love has limits, you know, like, I don't know that I could forgive them, uh, during my life on earth. Maybe, maybe after, I don't know, but God's love, you know, if we're saying that God's love is infinite and never ending, then I I can't possibly even as a human being conceive of that. Mm. And so to me, it comes down to uh, human beings want, they want justice. They want to know things are fair. They want to know that bad people like Hitler are paying for, for what he did, you know? Um, and, and, and the idea that both Hitler and, you know, the person who went to church every Sunday and was a, a pious individual are sitting next to each other, you know, at the pearly gates is just inconceivable to a lot of people, which I understand, you know, but to me, it's, it, it, it always comes back to justice. And so when you, when you describe it as in spite of love, I think, gosh, that's really like kind of my, my idea of like, uh, where God, God's love extends further than our own. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 God loves us no matter what we've done. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's hard for us to love others when they treat us wrongly. Um, you know, I think we ought to love others even when they treat us wrongly. So we should try to imitate God in that way. Now, by loving others in spite of what they've done, I don't mean that we should just pretend like it didn't happen. Uh, I'm not saying that uh, loving others in spite of what they've done means we have to just automatically reconcile. Um, I'm not saying that at all. Sometimes um, forgiveness means that we have to decide not to get revenge and that we wish people well, even though we have incredibly negative emotions toward them. I think that's perfectly compatible with loving in spite of. So, I think God loves that, does this by nature, but you and I have to make real choices to do that, and it can be difficult. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. Um, I recently interviewed um, uh, Kirsten Powers, and uh, she she just released a book on grace and was talking about the fact that um, you can love someone and you can still say that I don't, you know, I don't condone what you've done, 
right. you can still set boundaries with that person uh, while still loving them. That's a, that's possible. We can do that. That's right. <laughs> so, exactly. I strongly agree with that. Yeah. So, so talk about some of the other, the other uh, forms of love that are, that, that we find in the Bible. You also mentioned Eros, which I believe is also a Greek, Greek term. Yeah. That, that word Eros itself doesn't appear in the Bible, but if Eros is something like appreciating what's valuable, um, then the idea of, appears a lot in the Bible. You know, whatever is lovely, whatever is beautiful, true, etc. I can't remember the verse off the top of my head, but uh, Paul says, not only should we think on those things, we should also pursue them. And so I think Eros, this appreciation of value, uh, sees something valuable in the world, responds in a positive way, appreciates it, values it, um, talks, uh, understands it as worthwhile, and that's a way to promote well-being as well. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately, in the Christian tradition, some people have so restricted what love is, they've said, well, love is only, you know, self-sacrificial, or you only love despite the sin that was committed against you. But there's lots of biblical support for the idea that we all can also love in appreciating what's helpful, valuable, worthwhile in others. Um, and it's, you know, it's true in our everyday life. I want my wife both to act for my good when I'm sick as a dog and vomiting all over in the bathroom. I want her to love in spite of the fact that I'm not fun to be around that day. But I also want her to love me by saying, you know, Tom, you look hot. You know, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm attracted to you. There's something valuable about you. Maybe it's your personality, your looks, whatever. Maybe, you know, she'd never say I got great jokes, but something, <laughs> <laughs> something she finds valuable about me. I want that kind of love as well. Yeah, I think this is so important. I, 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 not very often do you hear conversations uh, re- regarding love and its many different facets. You know, it's yep. we kind of lump everything in just the the word love and assume that all types of love are the same. And so, I, I think it's really interesting that you've got agape or what you call the in spite of form of love, eros, uh, as the because of form of love, and then you talk about philia. Uh, what you call the alongside of form of love. So talk about what you mean by that. <laughs> yeah, this one's the idea of friendship love is what a lot of people would call it. Um, and scripture not only talks about us being friends with others, but even friends with God, something Aristotle did not think was possible, but the biblical writers thought friendship with God was possible. I kind of expanded a little bit and talk more in terms of cooperation and collaboration that we can work alongside of. That's the little catchphrase I have for Philea, alongside of God and others. And um, this gets back to some of my claims about how God really needs our cooperation for love to thrive in our lives and in the world. And it's not just God, but it's others as well whom we can love as friends. And I think this philea love, you know, the, the agape love and the eros love, it can be ongoing, but it's easier to think of it as sort of an episode. You know, someone treats you badly. What are you going to do in response? Well, I'm not going to get revenge. I'm going to try to act for their well-being and the well-being of the whole in spite of what they've done. Or you come up, there's something you admire in someone or something in the world. 
you love it because of its value and it's kind of the episode. Whereas friendship love tends to suggest a kind of ongoing, continual cooperation. It can be episodic, but it has more of the, the notion that this is a series of relationships over time. And I think this filet of love is probably more neglected than the other two in the dialogue. Uh, and it's so important because as a relational theologian, I think God is calling me moment by moment and all creation moment by moment to this kind of collaboration. Absolutely. And I think, I think, uh, I don't want to miss any of these. I think the last one that you have listed here is Ahava. Am I pronouncing yeah. that correctly? Ahava. Yeah. It's yeah, uh, another Hebrew word. Um, it's about as common as Hesed, but it's not usually referred to as often as Hesed uh, in by uh, Old Testament scholars. Hesed has kind of more of the steadfast covenantal kind of uh, ring to it, whereas Ahava is more of the fondness, affection, desiring kind of. Uh, the words are used in various different ways, so I don't make it sound as if it's hard and fast. Ahava means this and Hesed always means that. But generally speaking, Ahava is kind of the love that we would talk about for children or partners or, uh, yeah, some kind of feeling-oriented love. And it's important to me to note that the biblical writers talk about God having this kind of love, too. God has really motions in the Bible. And that's something a lot of, Augustine would be a good example of this, but a lot of Christian theologians have rejected the idea that God has real emotions in relation to creation. Open and relational people like me, we accept that in part because the biblical writers talk an awful lot about God's emotions. Yeah, as I say, they have no problem acknowledging God's anger in the Old Testament. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you know, that's an emotion. <laughs> yes. Anger, sadness. Sometimes God's really happy and proud, you know, pleased, delighted, I think is the words translators usually will use. But yeah, God's got a range of emotions. Now, in the open and relational community, we like to say these emotions in God are real but unlike emotions in humans that sometimes get out of hand and cause us to do things that are not helpful, sinful, evil perhaps even, in God that never happens because God's nature is love. That never changes. But So God can have both emotions and yet never break bad, always be steadfastly loving. So the the last thing I want to ask you about uh, to comment on is is uh, one of the things you say is uh, the biblical writers do not account for all possible exceptions of love in their time or ours. The meaning of love is uniform, but its expressions are pluriform, which I love because um, it really gets back to the idea that that love manifests in a multitude of different ways. So talk yes. about that a little bit. Yeah, there are lots of expressions of love that we do day by day that aren't mentioned in the Bible. Right now, we're doing one. There's no biblical passage that says, love your neighbor by having a podcast conversation. But I think what you and I are doing right now can be a real form of love. I intended it to be a loving action because I intend this uh, conversation to promote well-being, to help others, to help you and me, to somehow make the world and our lives a better place. But no mention of podcasts in the Bible. Um, no mention of so many things we do on a day-to-day -day basis, driving our kids to school, 
But all these very mundane, often mundane, sometimes they're spectacular, but often they're mundane things we do to make our lives and the lives of others better, those are real forms of love that I think God calls us to moment by moment. And 99.99% of them are not mentioned in the Bible. Maybe maybe sort of a general idea is mentioned, like, you know, helping others or being good to your family. That's the same as driving your kids to school. But the specific forms, 99.99% of the forms of love we express aren't exp- explicitly mentioned in Scripture. Man, um well, I think the way we got to leave it is, is what are some of your last thoughts? What, what, what is your hope for this book? Because God knows we could use a lot more love uh, out there today. So what, what yeah. is kind of your <laughs> hope for this book? <laughs> well, this is kind of a more academic book than I sometimes write. I have this kind of system in my life. I write an, a book for the academy and then a book for the person on the street. And this one's a little more on the academic side of things. Um. I think there is a ton of confusion around the L word, the love word. And I think some Christians have oftentimes contributed to that confusion rather than clarifying. And so a big part of what this book is doing is clarifying, saying this is a general definition of love. So love has one meaning here that makes sense. Then it has lots of different forms, and we can express those and appreciate those and celebrate the diversity of forms of love, understanding they all have this one definition in common. So that's one major goal. And maybe the second one I'll mention is something I've already uh, hinted at, I guess more than hinted at, I've talked about. And that is, it's not just that we have confusion about what love is. We have these claims about who God is as love that just don't fit our day-to-day experience and the broad biblical witness. Claims about God's relation to evil and suffering that just don't make sense uh, with our intuitions about what love is. We need to think about God as perfectly loving and not causing or permitting evil. Or notions about God being able to forsake us, leave us, and abandon us that just don't fit what we understand what love truly is, that, that, that forbears with us, to use that old word. Um, and so it's not just a definition, it's also helping people to get in their minds new ways of thinking about God that make sense with our deep intuitions and what I think is the general drift of Scripture. Beautiful. I love it. It's uh, it's a great book. Uh, before I let you go, where can people go to get a copy? Well, first of all, when is it out? Uh, then where can where's the best place to go to get it? And where can people go to stay up on top of uh, your work? It's supposed to drop on uh, February 25th. And on that day, it should come out in ebook, paperback, hardback, and audio. It will be out not only on Amazon, but other online booksellers and, and audiobook sellers, etc. It should be pretty universally available there. Um, so I encourage people to go to whatever bookseller they uh, like buying books from and pick up a copy. Well, thank you so much for coming on again. Uh, folks who are listening, go out and get a copy of Pluriform Love. Uh, thank you so much again for coming on. Uh, I always uh, enjoy our conversations and uh, appreciate the work you're doing. 
My pleasure, John. I like our conversations too. Thanks for the opportunity. John was young and driven with a heart of gold. Finished seminary, married, found a church he could call. Made a living, giving, dying folks a shoulder and a hand. Until he told his leaders that he had some feelings for another man. And they said, John, you must go and take your broken heart and walk it to the door. We know you're
No.